Hey everybody, Michael June here with Game Changers for Government Contractors. Today I have my business partner Josh Frank on with me. Josh, I'm excited to have you on. We don't get you on near enough on the podcast, but for those that don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself. First of all, hello Mr. Mike. Those of you who don't know, Mike and I are business partners here at RSM Federal. I'm a former military intelligence officer and I've worked for both small and fortune companies. I ran the Department of Defense for MasterCard Worldwide up in D.C. I've worked for eight A's. I've worked for woman owned. I've even worked with Mike at a small business. My specialty is, I think most people know, but if you don't know me, are tactics and strategies of how you bridge, combine business strategy with government sales strategy. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah. And I think a lot of people do know who you are. They've either gotten one or multiple copies of different books <laughs> that, that, you, that you've written. I think that's where a lot of people know us from is the books, the podcast and speaking events and things like that. So so I think a lot of folks listening do know who you are, So that, that but that's a good quick little intro for those that don't. Today, we are going to be talking about the Buy America Act. That's kind of the focus of this, but we're going to talk about a few other things that touch product companies. We, we always talk about service-related companies for the most part. So we're going to switch things up today and, and talk some product-related stuff. I think, as you said earlier, this is really good timing because there have been a lot of changes that impact these types of companies. There's been a lot of questions questions around this. When you look at legislation that's come out over the last two years, really, there's been a lot of different little moving pieces all over the place with percentages and all kinds of things that relate to this. But I think for the average person that is getting into government contracting, they hear Buy America Act and they're like, what the heck is that? Or even on a broader basis, what type of regulations and things impact product-based companies? Because I think the average company getting in this market has no clue that there are a lot of little things that can impact how they sell to the government and the way that works. So why don't you kick us off here with some of the basics and what those regulations are? We're going to talk at a very high level for, and I say high level because this is tip of iceberg. There's no way we can cover everything that we want to cover on these pieces. Every company is going to be different because they're sourcing their products from somewhere else or a different country. But at a high level, there are four things for regulations or statutes that impact small businesses or businesses in general that sell to the government. Those are the Buy American Act, the Berry Amendment, the Trade Agreement Acts, and then one that is very misunderstood is the non-manufacturer rule. Let's start with by American. From a statute regulation perspective, this is FAR Part 25, the Federal Acquisition 25. It is just as it sounds. It is a restriction on the purchase of supplies that are not domestic end products. You know, it, it's a price preference. That's what Buy America Act is. It's not just domestic end product. It's a price preference. And we'll talk more on that later. There's a two-part test to Buy America. Mike, we have gotten so many questions from um, our customers, our clients, uh, as well as our federal access members about the two-part test, as well as Barry Amendment and the other pieces. And you can read the words, you can read the language, and there's still questions. People are still scratching their heads. But the two-part test is one, the domestic components, whatever product you're selling is made up of multiple components, right? It could be metal and rubber and fabric and all those different pieces. Those components, 55% of the cost of those components must be U.S. domestic. 
Okay, so that's part rule number one. Part number two, it has to be manufactured in the United States. Manufactured means there is a substantial change to the physical character of the actual product. That is by America. 55% and components are U.S. domestic. Number two, those components are manufactured into the end product in the United States. So that's by America. Let me stop you there for yeah, that sure. one. Yeah, sure. On that one, for the second part there, manufactured. So does that really mean that to comply with that, that I can get a bunch of those components from other different countries and then ship them to my warehouse and then that's where the assembly happens? That is a really good question. And this causes companies some trouble. The short answer is yes. If all it is, though, is some plug and play. Uh, There's some companies, Mike, that purposely tell their manufacturers in the U.S. or even some overseas, don't put it together. Don't actually put put it together, just give me the parts. And I will pay somebody $7 an hour, $14 an hour to put your components together so that I can say I manufactured it. Government doesn't like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah, But the regulations, it's really- It's kind of vague. Yeah. It is very vague. Let's take the reverse of that. What if the product is made from a single component? Let's say there's not multiple components. Like a towel or or something like that, that, right? Maybe, maybe the towel is everything from the, the textile, the thread the labels, most textiles are more than one component, although that's on the like uh, towel side, but look at gloves that are made from nitrile. It's a single component, it's nitrile, yet it's just one component. So the question then is, has that material undergone a substantial change in physical character? Well, if the nitrile component is coming from a manufacturer, let's call, let's say it's in the Midwest, it's not a glove, it's just nitrile. It's that, you know, whatever you want to call a fabric. It's not even fabric, whatever it is. But then you bring it into your warehouse and you actually put that material into a machine and the machine makes it into the shape of a glove. That's a substantial change in physical character. Mm-hmm. So no, that's a good question. Yeah, and I would think the same, like as, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking through like if I was making jeans, for example, mm-hmm. and I imported the fabric, but then it was just like a roll of fabric and then it got into my warehouse and I cut it out, I sewed it, I put the buttons on and the buttons were bought here. That's a very significant change when you just get a piece of fabric and then you make it into the item that's actually going to ship. I agree. And and now you used a word. You used the word imported. So hold on. Let's take, all right, let's take a pair of jeans as an example. I was going to talk boots, but let's, let's stick with jeans for a minute. You have the material, you have the cloth, you have the thread that's going to sew it all together. You are going to have the buttons or the zipper that is going to close up the pants. You're going to have labels on the back, right? You're going to have maybe ink that is stamped on the inside of those pair of pants. Today, 55% of those components have to be domestic and products, US. Well, let's say it's $30 total for the component costs. And let's say the uh, cloth is $18. And then the, you know, whether it's the thread, the buttons, the label, that makes up the other 12 bucks. Right off the bat, that cloth, if we're importing it, that 60% we're dead. That won't meet the Buy American. If we get the cloth for the pants from the USA, from a domestic manufacturer, well, at $18 of the 30, let's say, that's 60%. Even though the thread or the buttons 
or the label is coming from Korea or China. It's okay. We still meet the Buy America Act, even though some parts of the product are coming from countries that really don't fall under BAA right. or even the trade agreement. Right. Yeah. And that's probably a really good lead in. So now, now that people kind of have a, a little bit better understanding on, on those two qualifying rules and how that works, now we get into probably the TAA, right? We, mm-hmm. get, we get into discuss that because there's there's all <laughs> these different components here. So do you want to go there next and talk about that or what's what's your next? Yeah, let's. Uh, that's, that's a good segue. You know, the trade agreement acts, this is really misunderstood by the folks that we work with. This is a big training piece for, for our companies that sell products. Trade agreement acts are effectively, effectively a waiver to buy American. There are financial thresholds, dollar thresholds to the trade agreement acts. They apply if it's $180,000 or more, and this applies to supplies, products, and services, the trade agreement act applies. If it is $7 million or more for construction contracts, the trade agreement applies. And so if you're looking at an opportunity, we have a lot of folks that go, hey, I'm trying to sell t-shirts. I'm trying to sell furniture. I'm trying whatever product you're trying to sell. And they say, hey, I don't meet the Buy America Act because the the end products are not here. 55% of these domestic end products, I don't have it. Well, guess what? If it's over $180,000, the total order, you're allowed to use Trade Agreement Act designated countries in place of US domestic manufacturers. Just remember the thresholds, $180,000 for supply service, about 7 million, a little bit more for construction. Now here's the deal though, you have to disclose that you're using a TAA without a waiver you know, in your bid. We haven't spoken about this, Mike. There are five countries that do not fall under Buy American and do not fall under Trade Agreement Act. Right. And by the way, the Trade Agreement Act, that's your WT World Trade Organization, your free trade agreement countries, your least developed countries, and Caribbean basin countries. If you don't fall into those, you are China, India, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Vietnam. If you are selling product today commercially from these countries and you're trying to sell to the US government and it's not PPE, <laughs> right? Because the government bought a ton of stuff from China, Mike, right? Mm-hmm. During COVID. Mm-hmm. I would say to you, you have uphill. I wouldn't recommend anybody that sources all their end products from those countries. I don't care if you are manufacturing it in the U.S. The regulation, the two-part rule says one of them is you manufacture in the U.S. Number two is 55% of those products have to be domestic end product U.S. With the exception, if it's over $180,000 as a contract value, then you're allowed to source these Trade Agreement Act countries in place of the U.S. Those are the big things on Trade Agreement Act. Uh, I mean, we could go on for a Mm -hmm. long time, but at a high level, that's what we're looking at. We've talked a little bit about BAA, Buy America. We've talked a little bit about TAA and the Trade Agreement Act. What about there's the Barry Amendment and NMR? Tell me a little bit about those two. Barry Amendment is interesting because Barry only applies to, for the most part, DOD. It it requires the Department of Defense to give preference and procurement to domestically produced, manufactured, homegrown products. Most notably, this applies to food, clothing, fabrics, and specialty metals. Here's the one thing you need to know. There are no component exceptions. It is 100% U.S. domestic product. 
we have several clients that sell textiles. You and I, we have one of our business divisions sells product to the VA and to the Department of Defense. If it's DOD, it's 100% domestic. There is no two-part rule. It must be manufactured in the United States and 100% of the end components must also come from the US. There's none of this 55% rule. Now there's exceptions. There's exceptions. One of them is if it's below micro purchase, if it's less than 10,000, right? In today's micro purchase thresholds. The credit uh, cards, yeah. Credit yeah, card. credit card, yeah, exactly. A Barry Amendment does not apply. If it's supporting US combat operations, doesn't apply. There's a couple other smaller exceptions. In a nut roll, that's the difference between yeah. the Barry and Buy American. It's very industry specific and it is 100% end component. I assume one of those other little loopholes there is if you're looking at a product and there are no U.S. manufacturers. So that question. I know it's come up a lot. That's why I threw it out. That, <laughs> yeah, not, not only has it come up a lot, let's talk a couple things here. First of all, there are procurement professionals, government acquisition professionals that know very well there are no domestic manufacturers for certain products. There just aren't. I think a lot of our listeners would be shocked to hear the list of, of products, right? That we just don't have the manufacturing. You know, think the chips, computer chips. Uh, President Biden just signed something into, uh, I, don't, I, I don't remember if it was uh, through Congress or it was a uh, executive order, but pretty sure it was Congress. Yeah, it's the, a chip chip thing. Yeah. Yeah. The right. chips act because we don't have computer chips. That's one of the reasons we don't have a lot of cars being built right now. And so there's a ton of things, not a lot, but there are some acquisition professionals that know full well that there are no domestic, but there's also currently no waivers by the SBA to say, okay, we're going to give you a waiver. So the Buy America Act doesn't apply. So we're seeing a lot of acquisitions. Mike, Lisa and, and her team are working through a bid right now for the VA. And it very specifically states Buy American Act what we're going to be bidding, there is no company that provides here in the, in the U.S. Some of the government ignore that and just go, I, it's like, I'm, I'm going to be blind. I'm going to close my ears, close my eyes and just hope that people lie and go, yeah, sure. I, I fulfill, I meet the Buy America Act. And that's a, that's one of the things I'll jump ahead. That's a recommendation for our listeners. Don't lie. If necessary, educate that procurement officer, the contracting officer. If they refuse to listen and you know that the regulations and the statutes in the, in, in the solicitation that specify Buy American or Trade Agreement Act or Barry or whatever it may be, and you know they're ignoring it, they just, it's end of year and they got to get some sales, get some orders and dollars appropriated, obligated, then you can protest pre-turn, you know, pre-proposal. I'm not sure I answered your question there. I think I went off on a on a tangent. What did you ask me again? No, no, I think I think you, you answered the, the question there. You know, when I'm thinking about all of these things, it's so funny when you're looking at the rules the government has for themselves that they can bypass whenever they really... It's kind of funny when you look at all of it. I think the only one we didn't touch on out of the main four was NMR. And so if you could touch on that one, that would be helpful. The non-manufacturer rule, and I've spoken to no less than a dozen business owners in the last two weeks on this. The non-manufacturer rule is designed for companies that are distributors and resellers. They're not manufacturers, right? Non-manufacturer rule. There are four requirements that you must meet to be NMR. And by the 
way. Every solicitation that requires the NMR, you have to sign your signature and check like a dozen boxes to say, I understand the, this NMR requirement. I understand this one. The government makes it very clear. You're putting your business on the line. You meet the NMR and you're going to sign to it because if we find out you're not, we're coming after you. That being said, I can't tell you how many companies are signing off on this and they don't really meet it. Let's talk the four requirements. And by the way, Buy America Act is a part of this, right? I mean, these sort of work together. The first one is you may qualify as a non-manufacturer if you don't exceed the 500 employee alternative size standard for non-manufacturers. Let's think about this, Mike. We don't have 500 employees. We meet that, okay? We meet that. So our, our business division for veteran warehouse supply, we pass that flying colors. The second one, you are primarily engaged in selling this product. This is part of your trade, right? It's none of this, you know, oh, gee, we sell textiles, right? Which we do. That's what Veteran Warehouse Supply sells. And then we bid on lawnmowers. If we've never sold a lawnmower before, we're not primarily engaged. We would fail that. But based on what we sell, we know the textiles, we pass that. So we're good on number one and number two. Number three, this is an interesting one. You have to take ownership or possession of the item. And Mike, this is one of the most important things that, that we'll talk about today, because this is what we always get calls on. How the heck do you take ownership or possession when you have a drop ship business? That's what we do. That's what most of our, our clients and, and you know the hundreds of, of federal access members that sell products, they drop ship. They never touch it. They're distributors, they're resellers. I learned what I know about the ownership or possession requirement on this from Stephen Coprins. I remember, I want to say it was the 2017 VA's uh, National Veteran Small Business Engagement. In fact, it was in St. Louis. I attended a session for the sole purpose of understanding this number three. You have to take ownership or possession. And what I learned is that the dropship, it actually went to SBA's lawyers and they came back with a finding and they said, you know what? It is in a manner consistent with industry practice. Dropshipping is okay. So now that we know that dropshipping is okay, well, how the heck do you take ownership or possession of the items? We know you're not taking possession because that's why we're dropshipping to save money on, on, on that. It's ownership. And one of the things that Steve and said, he said, look, you need to have an agreement with the manufacturers that you support so that, you know, when UPS or FedEx or whoever is picking up from the manufacturer, when they pick up, I, my company has the obligation of taking over title, insurance, etc. Now there's nothing written on exactly what you have to take ownership of, but if you're able to show the government, look, I take ownership, the insurance, everything. If that, if it gets lost, I'm responsible for getting another shipment sent out. I am financially on the hook. That's ownership. You know, when the transportation carrier picks it up, I insure the shipment. I maintain ownership and all the associated, I take the risks, however you want to identify or define the risks until it's actually delivered to the government. In that result, what have we done? We've put things in writing with our distributors who manage the manufacturers, right? And with our manufacturers say, listen, we're putting this in writing. We're going to take ownership. Even though you're the one doing the dropship, even though you're the one paying for even though you're doing all these things and laying down that we will legally do the following things from the time it leaves your warehouse until the time it gets to the government location. That now shows that, hey, Mike, you and I, we have ownership. So that's number three. Number four, this one. 
you, this, you have to supply end products that are from a small business manufacturer that is also in the United States. So these are the four. You have to uh, be under the 500 size standard. That's your business. You have to be in the business of selling this product. You have to, if you're doing dropship, if you're not doing dropship and you're actually bringing these products into your warehouse, you're golden. But if you dropship, you got to take ownership. That's number three. And then number four, is it a small business manufacturer? And is it domestic? Pretty much is it by America? Those of you that are manufacturers or listeners that are manufacturers, you don't have to worry about it anymore. But if you're a reseller or a distributor and you don't do your own manufacturing, you still have to think through the NMR piece to protect yourself. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah, it does make sense. And I think for the average product company, if you are a reseller or something along those lines, some, some sort of authorized vendor or whatever it is, I think you've got to get up to speed on all this stuff mm -hmm. because you're going to see an RFQ, an RFP come out and you're going to see some language and just think, oh, well, you know, we're just supplying a price, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and not go down the rabbit hole of what each of these are. And so I'm always on the side of, you know, if, if I don't see something or if I don't understand something, I need to educate myself on it. So if you're seeing some of these FAR clauses and you're like, what in the world is that? Then you better educate yourself on it because mm -hmm. you don't want to just say, oh yeah, yeah, let's just check that box and turn that in because that can cause a lot of problems. We won't get into the, the problems it'll cause. That's for a whole other podcast. That's always my advice. Anytime you see something you don't understand, stop and ask. And if you're product related, then you have to know that all of these can and probably will come up at some point in your future. So now that we've kind of talked a little bit about what they are, talk to me a little bit about your recommendations for listeners. And you kind of touched on this a little bit, but what are your, you know, your two, three main recommendations for for listeners. I'm going to tag on to what you were just talking about, Mike. The whole Buy American and Trade Agreement and Barry and NMR, uh, it's like quicksand. And if you to tag on to what you were saying, if you don't understand it, you do have to ask the questions because there are a lot of acquisitions. They go, okay, not only do you have to ver verify that it's Buy American, we want a table of every component that makes up your product. How much of the total component cost, each of those products, you know, components entail. What country are they coming from? I, this is this is not something you can lie about. They get very granular on, you know, especially huge multi-million dollar orders. You have to show us where every component is coming from. So you can't be making this stuff up. Every company is going to be a little different. Every company is going to have different products. And even if you have the same product, you may be, you know, sourcing the components from different countries. And so you do need to get up to speed on, on what all these pieces mean. And if you have questions, if you're one of our clients or you're a federal access member, reach out to us, ask us, and, and we'll help walk through for your specific company. I already talked about, you have to understand the agencies and commands. They have as many challenges as uh, with regulations as we have sometimes. Some, some, not all, some purposely ignore them. Some don't care. There's some that just 
that know there isn't a domestic manufacturer, but they still put BAA, right? As you said, ask questions, you know, clarify the application of the regulations pre-award during the Q&A phase. There is one thing we didn't talk about. I think we need to talk about as part of the recommendations. There's a reasonableness of cost. As an example, if there are four companies that submit bids, the first three, they are domestic. They meet the 55% domestic end product requirement and they're manufactured in the U.S. And then there's the fourth one. It is not domestic end product, but it is manufactured in the United States. In those situations, there are percentages. It's called determining the reasonableness of cost. What the government will do, this is not DOD. These are the federal agencies. The federal agencies will say, okay, they don't meet the Buy America Act. So we're going to add, they're, they're a small business. We're going to add 30% to their total cost. This is not something we that, that you do as a contractor. The government does it. And they go, okay, we'll say uh, this company submitted $100,000 for a bid. 30%, $130,000. That's the actual bid amount that we have. As long as our $130,000 is less, is less than those companies that meet Buy America Act based on reasonableness of cost, even though Buy America Act is selected, we will win for a foreign end product. It's really wild. Um, and so, you know, and, and if it's a large business, it's 20%. But for our, our small company listener, uh, small business listeners, it's 30. Uh, the only other exception is if it's Department of Defense, it doesn't matter whether it's small or large, they add 50%. So right? just for the sake of simplicity here, I'm going to throw the sure. numbers off and make them more skewed. So let's assume that we have four companies. Three of them ha comply completely with Buy America Act. Mm -hmm. They come in with a bid of $100,000 each, give or take 1000 bucks. Okay. But I come in with my foreign product, and I'm at $50,000. Can the government choose me? So, all right. So I mean, let's I, I'm, I'm half the cost of them. I'm going to run this 50000 plus... 30%, which is 65,000, uh, or, or total is 65,000. So it's another 15. I'm at 65,000. If all three of those companies that are by America are, are meeting the two rules, are more, and you said they are, they're 100,000, mm -hmm. then the government is allowed to award yep. to me. Yep, there you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. One final thing on recommendation. Two things. One, it's more than simply understanding the regulations, Mike. You also have to have a written process in place for your company. You need to say, this is how we're going to deal with how we track our products, the components that go into them, the countries they're coming from, the dollar amounts, ensuring you know for every product you sell, do you hit 55% for, for US? You have to have process when you're looking at a solicitation. What are you looking for? And when do you go back to this, the contracting officer and ask for help? The other thing is, by American, the component percentage requirements, it's 55% right now. Our listeners need to recognize that it is going up to 65% in 2024, and it's going up to 75% in 2029. So if you are not strategically looking at your products today and looking at the component requirements, assuming you're, you're not 100% US made, you need to take those things into account. The final thing is this, knowing that the Buy America Act thresholds for components are going up 55 now in October of 2022 through the end of what is it? 
2023, it's going to be 65 and then 75. Resellers are going to be running into trouble. Okay. There, there are a lot of companies out there that rely on other countries for, for those components. Well, you're going to start seeing, we're going to start hearing about a lot of small businesses that are trying to buy stakes, equity in manufacturing firms, local U.S. manufacturing companies in order to solidify their positions in the market, to be able to say they're manufacturers. There's not a lot of law on this. And in fact, I am currently working with the SBA, the Small Business Administration, to get some clarity on some of these pieces. But if you are a 100% distributor reseller today and your products are not 100% U.S. component, you really need to start looking at your sourcing strategy over for the next several years or you may be out of this market. I'm not trying to scare people, but knowledge is power yeah. and we have to plan with that information. Yeah, you got you to gotta plan ahead. And so, as you said, there, there's not a lot of examples in this in, in the market cur- currently. So what I would expect is as people encounter this, as the increases happen in the percentages and as people try to kind of position in the market by, like, like you said, purchasing a percentage of a manufacturer, what I would assume will happen is the natural course of things is somebody will protest, then somebody will review it, and then we'll have some precedent. That's the kind of thing that typically happens. Or somebody will go in and cause this to wind up in front of a court or something to get legal precedents, maybe even a change to the FAR somewhere that says, if a company owns... 20% or more, they can now be considered a manufacturing company. Maybe, maybe not, but that's kind of the natural course of things where people make changes in their business and go, well, this isn't written in the rule that you can't do this. So let me try this, see how it works. And then somebody's like, well, I don't think you can do that. Well, I don't know. Let's put it in front of a judge, right? That's how we get those things kind of worked out. So I, I see some of those things probably working out. If I were to give a couple of my suggestions on this whole thing, number one is to know who you sell to and what applies. You know, like you were saying, whether it's the Fed market or the DOD market or both, know what applies where. That's one of the big things. I think knowing the thresholds is a big one too, so that if you're approaching an RFQ and you see some things that don't apply, yet somebody has put them in there, you can say, hey, by the way, this doesn't apply. You know, Mm -hmm. you and I are always talking about how you can actually affect the outcome of an RFP or whatever it may be during acquisition by bringing up some of those things in the QA process or whatever it may be. Say, hey, just so you know, this doesn't apply because it's under this threshold. I recommend you remove this out of here. But if you don't know that, you won't ask that. Absolutely. And not only that, but if you don't understand the regs and, and the statutes, then by the time you do understand it, it's too late. It's too late. And you have no ability to influence. As you said, we're always talking about how do you influence an acquisition? Well, it starts with education. Yeah. And, and you've got to be educated prior that because you don't have time, which is really goes to my last point here. If I know that I sell 35 different products or 100 products, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, it's on me to get all of that information you were talking about ahead of time. The worst thing could happen is there is an RFQ. I want to go chase after it. I don't have the information and it's 3.30 in the morning and I'm emailing people in God knows where trying to get information from 35 different companies about 97 products and I don't make the cutoff on the bid because I'm waiting on information that I need to supply. 
Okay, so I thought I was done. I'm jumping in on time. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> this brings up a really good point. You know, when we do bids, for those of you who keep hearing me say Veteran Warehouse, we have two business divisions. One is RSM Federal that runs the coaching and the federal access coaching and training uh, platform. And then we have Veteran Warehouse Supply that actually sells to the government. For VWS, when we are sourcing uh, and verifying numbers in the ARO, right, the uh, arrival after the order, you know, how quickly can we get product to them? And when we're putting our bids together, we have to provide the spec sheet for that product. 50% of the time we don't have it, right? It's some one-off mm-hmm. product and we've got to get it. And we have to, even if it's manufactured in the US, it may be a new supplier we're using, it happens with our existing ones too. We need to have the list of the components and the percentages. Getting that information is like pulling teeth. I can't remember, and this is something that we're working to improve on our own side. The last time that we did a bid where we weren't scrambling at the bloody end, right? We're, we're just a day or two before submission. And we're like, excuse me, excuse me. We've asked you five times for the component list. We have to know. You're not just giving us a component list. I want the name of the manufacturer. I want their address to prove it's in the United States. And I want their phone number. The reason why we ask five times, because they don't want to give it to us. Mm-hmm. They know, they tell us it's by American, but they know it's not. Right. Well, guess what? They're not on the hook. Yeah, We're the right. ones. That's right. We're it's, the ones it's up on to the us, hook. It's up to us to validate that or who's ever selling. So, so yeah. yes, you get as much of it done beforehand on all your products uh, that you can, because if not, it's, it's a nightmare trying to yeah. put your bids together. Well, and then that's probably the final point there is if you get one of these, I know there's so many people out there that love to procrastinate. And they're like, oh, well, this this will be no problem to slap this together in 24 hours. You're not going to slap it together. So if you don't have it all done, you start right away. Identify what you need to request because it's probably going to come down to the wire and you're still going to be making those last minute phone calls and demands to get that information. I'm going to give even a little bit more value here to our listeners. When you look at one of those solicitations, when you look at an RFQ, highlight it. What do they want? Do they want a certification that you're a, uh, a certified distributor for the manufacturer, right? That's almost always going to be the case. Highlight. Do they want a spec sheet? Highlight. Oh, it says Buy America. I know I need a component listing. Our company, we have a cover sheet that goes on top of every single RFQ that consolidate. It's a compliance matrix just like for service companies that says, when I talk to the manufacturer, I talk to the other distributor, we need the following eight things. And that goes out 24 hours after uh, the RFQ is released. Because if we don't tell them, hey, this is what we need. We need all these things. And and some companies don't have it. We need it in 48 hours. I want it a week before this thing is due. Mm -hmm. Because guess what? We never get that information until about 24 hours. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Until <laughs> you're, you're about to hit send. So I think there's also some really great recommendations. I won't ask you for final thoughts since you already gave them. I will just merely <laughs> just thank you for coming on today and, and helping clarify this. Because I think, again, if you're a product company, there's a lot of little landmines here. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's not hard to educate yourself and ask questions. So, so thanks for coming on and, and helping us you clarify bet. that. You bet. Thanks, Mike.